Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining our podcast today. Today's guest is Ross Jenkins. Ross is someone I've known since he was born. He's a veteran of the United States Air Force. He served in South America as well as the Middle East. After being honorably discharged from the Air Force, he continued to serve his country as a private contractor in Africa. From a dead-end road in the middle of Illinois to the Serengeti Plain, Ross has experienced life in many different places around the world. Today, he discusses his time as an airman and a private contractor. Please enjoy episode number three with Ross Jenkins. God bless. All right. My guest today is Ross Jenkins. Ross, thank you very much for being here today. I appreciate it, buddy. Oh, it's a pleasure. Good to be here. Uh, what you been up to? Oh, just causing trouble about everywhere I go. Well, that's that's <laughs> par for the course. You're in college now. Yeah, yeah. Trying that again. Uh, all what? for the Thanksgiving break at the moment. So I got to spend last weekend up at mom's hunting. What uh, What are you? You're majoring in some type of. I'm majoring in uh, aviation management. Now I'm going for a, a bachelor's degree in specifically aviation management, not just management. So that's like running a running an airfield or something like the one in Shelbyville here. Like it's a degree in that or anything specializing in planning for, say, the expansions when they expand something at O'Hare. That's the kind of thing. Okay. So I, I'm going to show my complete ignorance on this subject. So like even the little airport in Shelbyville, there's a there's a manager that runs the mm-hmm. whole thing. Yeah, I worked there when I was in high school. I worked for the fellow that ran it. You're kidding. But it's a it's a county airport. It's a county municipal airport. I'll be darned. And yeah. so all these little airports around, some I guess it makes sense. Somebody's got to be in charge. So there's a there's a huge um I guess you'd call it like a step down level plan. So it starts with the big hubs, like you got O'Hare, you've got Orlando or Miami or, you know, all, all the great big ones where everybody comes through it. You go through those big ones, and then you've got the smaller ones down to the regionals, down to the little puddle jumpers, and then you've got all these municipal airports like that. I'll be darned. Yeah, that's actually – that planning setup is why – you remember back in, I think it was the early 90s, they expanded the airport, and they put that straight north-south paved runway in? Yeah. That's a – if I believe it's about a thousand, a five thousand foot runway, so it's big enough for people to do emergency landings if they can't make it to St. Louis. I, I've I've looked at that going, you know, they're on Route 16 going by it before, and I've looked at it and thought, man, I bet they could land a pretty big bird on that. Mm-hmm. And they could. I mean, you wouldn't want to. It's not ideal, but yeah, but it, you'd, it, you'd be surprised what you could land on that if you needed to. Is there a shortage for pilots right now? Oh yeah, and it's just going to get worse. Is that a good career field? Yes. It's a great career field if you're into that. Now, it, it's it's weird. I like to I like to bust on all my buddies who are pilots and of just course. tell them that they're just the world's coolest bus driver. <laughs> but you you can do a lot. I've never heard that. Actually. You can do a lot with it. You're either the world's lamest astronaut or the world's coolest bus driver. <laughs> either ways, yeah. yeah, yeah. But you can do so much with it. I mean, it, it's a great thing to get into, especially now, because the next ten, fifteen years, it's just going to expand. I mean, post COVID, everybody wants to go on vacation, so they're they're hitting record demand for tickets. They're hitting record use of all of these airports and all of the flights. I mean, they're just running through them. And cargo, I would think too, with all the Amazon and ordering everything online, they got to fly stuff here and there. And oh yeah, yeah, it's huge, absolutely uh-huh. huge. So. 
two, I believe, of the major airlines uh, have committed to starting their own schoolhouse. So you can come out of high school and go to whatever American Airlines University or whatever they call it, and you go through their training pipeline, and then you go work for them. That would be cool. Yeah, and that's a great that's a great. You got li- to live close to a city, though, don't you? Generally, um, it's called it's, it's what they call in domicile. It's best if you live in domicile, but the domiciles for the junior guys aren't that great. So, you know, if you if you get on with say United, you might get stuck in New York City. New York City, if you're making forty, fifty grand a year as a brand new pilot, it's not a great place to be. Sure. But to get to the nicer ones, the ones that more people want to get to, you got to build your seniority up. Like anything, though. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's kind of the plan. Oh. I'm not sure if I'll end up in the in the airline industry or not. I don't know. There's some there's something to be said about flying a guy out and dropping him off in a pond somewhere so he can fish for the week too. That is really cool. <laughs> that's cool. I always said I won't ever get on another airplane. Yeah. If you get your pilot's license, I might. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bring you up. Yeah. Man. I'll bring yeah. you up. I, I might, I might get in a bird with you, but I'll, you know, I used to jump out of them and now yeah. I, I just, the thought, and, and it's, it's the thought of being trapped where I can't get off. It's a psychological thing. It has, it has nothing to do with the fear of flying or the safety of it. It's what I don't like is I can't say, Hey, stop. I want to get off this. Yeah. I can it, see that. It's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. So see, I've never done that. Right. And it's, it's a thick. I've spent my entire career in and around airplanes. Uh-huh. I don't like heights. Yeah, no, no, I get it. It just, it, yeah, it just doesn't. It's backwards, you know. <laughs> so let's let's get into that. Let, let's start with your early life. Uh, I know where you grew up, but yeah, tell us. Yeah, I grew up uh, about a half mile south of you, or north of you. Yeah, uh, on yeah. the entrance to the dead end road. Yeah. Uh, grew up. Uh, mom and dad had a farm there. Um, I guess if I remember right, uh, dad's dad got a hold of it and built the house and put the buildings up there um pretty early in the 20th century i'm not sure years like i said i'm we talked a little bit about it before you started recording i'm fairly disconnected from the generation older than my parents they were all gone most of them had passed away yeah so i just knew mom's mom and she moved out i remember her moving out from pena and they set that trailer out there i was three and i remember they set that so i'm not sure dates on any of that, I just know at the footing of the barn, when you walk in the door, there's a spot where Granddad carved, I believe it's October 1945, when they poured the footing for that barn. <clears throat> I'll be darned. But, yeah, grew up there, uh, went to school in Shelbyville. Um, the whole time, one of the few people that didn't move or go somewhere or do something else. Uh, yeah, I graduated out of Shelbyville in 04. Um did you play any sports, any I, hobbies? I, oddly enough, from my body type, I played varsity tennis three years in high school, and I wasn't half bad at it. <laughs> that is, which, if anybody was to look at you, they would think football. Yeah, yeah, I'm, a, I'm about 100 pounds over what you'd expect for a, uh, a tennis pro. But that is, that, is, <laughs> that is cool, though. You went with tennis. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, Dad didn't <clears throat> quite know what to do about that. Dad played baseball and basketball. In fact, I've still got his... Uh, high school basketball uniform he stole it from the school no kidding i still got it now did he go to shelbyville or westervelt so he went to grade school at westervelt okay and then they closed that school and he graduated from shelbyville okay so I've, i didn't know when they closed it. i've got grandpa's class ring from westervelt i've got dad's class ring from shelbyville and then somewhere in a pocket i assume i've got mine from shelbyville i'll be darned well that, that's kind of cool yeah so you're a tennis player. I was. I was a tennis player. 
tried tried to get into all the cool stuff you know tried to get into ag and ffa a little bit but i didn't do a whole lot with that um just mostly spent an awful lot of my time just kind of being a jerk <laughs> <laughs> well you got to have a hobby i mean yeah so uh, and you, you pick up the stuff that you're good at you know? yeah. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> you graduate high school um what, what what point did you think military is it something you always knew you were going to do i was always going in i mean i knew i knew pretty young that dad was an army man that's what i called it right i, I didn't know any of the context i just knew dad was an army man and i was going to go to I heard more of the stories as I got older. I, I found out that he got drafted in the 60s and because of his MOS in the Army. He didn't go to Vietnam uh, where most everybody was going because he worked on the Sergeant missiles. They weren't used there because theater ballistic missiles didn't work in the mountains. So he actually went to Korea for a year and did his time there, and then he came back and finished out at Fort Sill in Oklahoma. Which is where I went to basic and AIT at. Yeah. Yeah. So he uh, he did his thing, and I knew a little bit about that, and I just thought that was the neatest thing ever. And honestly, when I I, I kind of felt like that was about the only way I was going to get away from here. And I never really thought <laughs> thought about it as anything else. I was just ready to go do stuff and see I, things. In a lot of ways, when you grew up, we weren't poor, but we weren't well middle class, lower middle, whatever you want to call it. There there really isn't a whole lot of opportunity. The military no. is kind of yeah. You want you want to get out and, and get away. That's kind of your tool. Did you talk to any recruiters other than the Air Force? I talked to everybody but the Army, actually, with with some intent of getting some info out of them. Uh, Navy sent a recruiter to the high school, and I talked to him for a little bit. Um, I returned the card and met uh, Sergeant Flanagan, the Marine, down at uh, Effingham. And it turned out that my Air Force recruiter uh, was in the same office as him. And it turned out the Navy recruiter, they had one of those where you walk in and then there's four offices in the corners and you split and talk to whoever you want. So Flanagan, uh, the Marine recruiter and my Air Force recruiter were buddies and they busted on the Navy guy and nobody really talked to the Army guys. <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> but uh, Flanagan was always aggravated that uh, I got poached, but I, I, I didn't belong in the Marines. Um. Yeah, I ended up talking pretty serious with the Air Force recruiter because I wanted to do something with airplanes. Uh, just that's the branch to go and do. I mean, honestly, and I mean, I know every branch has got their own aviation, but if you're into airplanes specifically, that's that's yeah. the one. So you end up deciding Air Force. Now, when you went in, do they now? I've heard you pick five MOSs, and then you find out at AIT. Did you when you went in? Did you know the job you were going to have? I did. Um, what they'll do is they'll give you a dream sheet for that, just like they give you a dream sheet for bases. So you put down your your primary jobs that you want. And honestly, I wasn't thinking anything about being in them. I just wanted to work on them. So I had, I think I had heavy aircraft crew chief, uh, attack fighter crew chief, sheet metal power plant, like all, everything was maintenance. I just wanted to work on planes. And I was sitting at my girlfriend's house in Shelbyville and I got a phone call, cell phone call from my recruiter and asked, Hey, do you have any interest in doing this airborne communications thing? Like, I don't know. What does it involve? First thing I heard airborne, I was like, I'm not jumping out of stuff. And he said, well, it means you're going to be on the plane doing stuff and it says stuff about radios and satellite communications and things like that i thought well that sounds fun i like electronic stuff so he said oh and you'd leave two weeks earlier (laughs) well yeah sign me up so so you were ready to go yeah so i went from leaving in august to moving my date up to july and 
I, I committed to that, uh, committed to that job. So basically, I, I'm not sure how it worked, but he basically put my name against that job, and that's what I went in, went in with. I didn't do the whole thing where you go in open general. Is what the so Air Force you knew calls it. This I, is what I'm going to be. I knew I was going to be. Uh, like, at the time, they called it Aces, uh, Airborne Communications uh, Equipment Specialist. Okay, so your <clears throat> your date approaches. You you leave. Yeah. You go. To, oh, and I, I was to, ready to go. I signed up in November of '03, and I didn't graduate until uh, '04. So I like I I signed up. I I was committed. Pot committed. I'm going. Okay. Lackland. That's where all Air Force goes to basic training is at Lackland Air Base in San Antonio, correct? Yeah, they've okay. just got the one, uh, whereas Army has has the two and Marine Corps has the two. Well, we had more than two back in the day. I don't know what they do now, but, I mean, you had Fort Benning, Fort Sill, Fort Jackson, Fort Leonard Wood, oh, they're all Fort still Knox. Yeah, wow. Well, they all were. Yeah, there was a ton of them. I knew, uh, I knew Leonard Wood <clears throat> and Sill were running, but I'm not sure who all was running, uh, has, was running stuff at that time. Yeah. But, yeah you got to figure they act, they reactivated a whole bunch of that stuff, too, because everything plussed up a couple of times after I got in. So Sure. Which, what, what year did you go in? I, I joined in 2004. Right. I left uh, July 12th, and I swore in July 13th, 2004. 2004. <clears throat> you get to Lackland. What was your your first thoughts whenever you you know? What did I get myself into? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I never really stopped asking myself that question. Uh, it's a lot different than growing up on a dead end road in the middle of Illinois cornfields, isn't it? Yeah, I never really thought of myself as uh, quiet or sheltered until I got into that sort of environment and started meeting people from all over. You know. Which we've talked a little bit. You had a little bit of that shell shock when you when you joined the army, and I had similar situation. Like you're from where? You do what now? <laughs> the city guys all chest thump and talk and brag, and it seems like the small town and rural people just kind of sit in the back and we're quiet, just kind of observe. Yeah, it's just just a different way of life. And there's always odd ducks in there. Like, oh, sure. We had a guy who was supposed to be a combat controller, but to have a top secret clearance, you can't talk in your sleep. That guy, we'd we'd mess with him. We'd have full conversations with him in his sleep. No, no kidding. <laughs> I don't know where he ended up going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you you get through basic. Uh, any highlights, lowlights, anything crazy about about. Uh, Everybody's got know. basic training stories. I mean, yeah, ba- basic training stories. Those, those are the thing you get so used to telling them when you when you first get in. You tell all your training stories and all your tech school stories because that's the only stories you got, you know. And then you quickly start adding new stories to the list, and you forget a lot of them. And they're better. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, we thought it was just the funniest thing one day when the kid that uh, he had to do the dust mop. Uh, the great big like four, three or four foot wide dust mop that you run down a hallway, down and back. Right. Yeah. Well, you're supposed to take those outside and shake them. We were on the third floor. So he's like, yeah, this is easier. I'll just stick it out the window and shake it. And then he had to go tell them that he had dumped the head of the thing off onto the roof of the second floor. And we had to get a roof of the first floor. We had to go downstairs, ask to get into their bay while they're in the middle of doing stuff, climb out their window and go get it. And the whole time the guys just dump one side and down the other hollering at him. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> silly stuff like that. Just the idiots. Yeah. Or the guy, uh, <clears throat> we had another guy that could do one of the TI's voices perfectly. And he'd mess with the guy that would talk in his sleep. Oh yeah. And so you'd walk in the, the door and you were looking down one bay, and then you could go through uh, an entrance, or you could turn at the door and go down a hallway, and then there was another bay. And so he would run laps of that, 
and the dude would stick his head on the other side back and forth. Ballard! Ballard! <laughs> proceeding, sir! And he just goes running past, and we're standing there looking at him. Yeah. And he gets going, and then he sticks his head on the other side of the wall. Ballard! Proceeding, sir! And this guy's sweating. Uh, yeah, just silly stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So it, about like anybody else. It's, yeah. You know, you're, you're away from, <clears throat> for me, the hardest part's just being away from friends and family I, you it know, really was yeah. i mean i hadn't spent a whole lot of i think 4-h camp was the longest i'd ever been away from home before and i didn't do great the first time i went and did that yeah you know sure. so going from the longest being away from home for about a week to for god knows when it was a little bit of a change for me so you graduate from basic yeah graduated from boot and then did the the great big move uh across the highway to medina annex <laughs> and stayed in san antonio for another month doing my first school and, uh, that, so your your AIT was also in the first one. Um, all of the all of the aircrew schools uh, got moved to Lackland after Katrina, because okay. a big hub of it was at Keesler in Biloxi, Mississippi. So they had to move that anyway. So they ended up moving the vast majority of all the aircrew training to Lackland, and they set up this great big thing they called the Center of Excellence, and that's where they train all of it now. But at the time I went through, I had to go through the under the basic aircrew course there, and that was about a month of just airplanes do this. Right. Uh, this is lift. This is yaw. This is roll. You're not a pilot, but you're supposed to know all this stuff. These are all the planes that you could work on in a general description of what they do. It's basic stuff. Right. Um, they they touted it as kind of a washout course because it was just the it was the fire hose they just feed you a lot of facts and numbers and everything and they use that as an attrition thing um if you can't keep up with that then you're probably not going to do as well when you progress so you do that you say that's a month yeah that was, where, where that was a month i went from there to uh spokane washington and i did my seer training out there for about a month i was i did three weeks doing the the Fairly aggressive camping trips stuff, and then I did sur- water survival there for over the last week. <clears throat> okay, SEER is survival, escape, resistance, and evasion. Uh, survival, evasion, uh, resistance, and escape. Okay, there's different levels. I, I, I did not go to SEER school. I, I know you know I have friends and family that did. Yeah, I know. Well, and the the Army SEER is very different than the Air Force SEER in a lot of ways too. Like a lot a lot of the, my friends that were in the Army that did SEER, they were doing that down in like Georgia, right? Whereas I was doing it up in like the the higher plane kind of stuff and going up into the kind of the foothills of the mountains and climbing up and down and stuff. It, it was it was fun. The camping trip part of it, I'd go back and do that any day of the week. The uh, the more aggressive bits, I. I don't need. Yeah, I don't feel like doing that again. <laughs> now, is it, you, you never ever get a true story from anybody that's been through Sear exactly what they is. Is there like a non-disclosure thing that you absolutely okay? okay. All right, and there's and a that re- makes sense. There's a reason for that. They tell you during the the initial <coughs> explanation of of what you're getting into and why they hold the things that they teach everybody very close. When uh, when they interviewed POWs coming back from Vietnam. Um, they they would set them down and the aircrew guys they would look at them and they say, "We'll just get this straight. This is not Fairchild. Fairchild was the base where he did Seer. They knew they knew what they were trained. You know they knew how to get around it. Like so, holy cow! The the stuff that they teach you that. is yeah. it's it's very they they try to be very careful about it. Now a lot of it is just basic 
woodsmanship and basic survival stuff. The stuff that they guard pretty carefully with facilities and how they do the what we call Happy Valley. It's where they put you in and, and mock everything up. Mm-hmm. Um, now, then you, but you said something about water survival, mm-hmm. which is a different course than just that's yes. not part of the Sears. No, that's that's a separate one. Uh, okay. The basic course I believe was SV eighty, and then I want to say it was SV eighty three was the water course, and the the one that I did. Um, was the end of October, so I didn't really want to go swimming in a pool outside. Uh, I would have 100% done the better SEER school. They had one that was off of Pensacola, Florida, and then you got to actually go jump out of a plane, bob around in the water for a while, and they come get you, but that's really expensive. So a couple of years before that, they made everybody go to uh, Fairchild, just stay there for an extra week, and they'd put you in a pool, and they had an apparatus that would – either simulate a small version of a C-130 or a big version of a helicopter, and they'd spin you upside down and throw you in the pool, and you'd have to get everybody out and all yeah. that. So that was fun, but a very different kind of fun. <laughs> sure, yeah, right. <clears throat> so you get done with, with your Sears school. And then I went to Biloxi, Mississippi. I was down at Keesler uh, before Katrina came through, so everything was still the way it was. And Keesler was a pretty big training base for a lot of different stuff. And what, stuff. what kind of what kind of training were you doing there? I was doing my uh, specific stuff. My uh, the Air Force calls them AFSCs, Air Force Specialty Code. Uh, so my specialty was one Alpha three. I was going to be an airborne comm guy. They sent now. The, is that what we would call an MOS? Yeah, in the army. Yeah, okay. it's the exact same thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so a lot of the the aircrew jobs, there were f- three or four of the different aircrew jobs that went to their last school there. Um, there were the ATC training was there, and the students for the ATC actually ran the field part of the time. They had electronic principles for a lot of the pretty heavy beeps and squeaks jobs, like the guys that did uh, calibration on testing equipment, things like that. They had, they had a lot of the electronic principles type training at Keesler until it got tore up by the hurricane. <clears throat> so what, in practical terms, what was your job? Like just to, to break it down to somebody that's non-military, simply what, what basically was your job? All right. So a person who maintains radios or any kind of a radiating piece of equipment on an airplane uh, the ground crew that would maintain that are, are termed as a comm nav troop. They work on communications and navigation equipment. I was essentially a flight-suited flying version of that guy. I I could I would bring up the system on the E3 AWACS. Uh, we had 30 UHF radios, three VHF AMs, VHF FM, three HF radios, and two data links. So and you I were was, in charge of I all the all communication of on I, yeah. that bird. I ran, I ran it up. I made sure everything was working. If anything broke down, I would pull out two tech orders that stacked up to be about 18 inches tall together. They were the, the ground maintenance tech orders, and we used their tech orders to troubleshoot to a point. How, how many of you were on that bird? It depends. Uh, there was at least one. I, uh, I was actually a communications technician. It was my crew position on the E3 uh, AWACS. Uh, and you had a technician and an operator that sat next to each other. Okay. And what they tended to do was have three people in the comm position. So that could be two operators in a tech, or it could be an operator in two techs. It just kind of depended on who had more experience or who was available for that flight. But I ended up flying with people quite a bit, 
and then ended up becoming an instructor after a few years. So at that point, you're almost never flying alone unless you're deployed. You've got somebody with you that either is in continuation training, meaning you're just flying with them to teach them more stuff. They're learning to do the job in the first place before they get signed off to go fight. Or you've got somebody who maybe has fallen behind and you're kind of checking them out. So where you, you get done with that schooling, where do you go to next? Right. So I finished Keesler in uh, February of 2005. So I did the whole Christmas exodus, came up to visit mom and dad and did all that. And then I went back in January, excuse me, and uh, finished the last month of school out. And I got stationed at Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City. In Oklahoma. Yeah. So when I got there, like I was saying, I got onto the E3 AWACS. It's a big uh, 707 platform with the spinning ray dome on the top. And that thing is a 1950s airframe with a 1960s computer that is in a case that's bigger than a gun case running a 1970s ground radar that's been grafted onto the back of the airframe. That's crazy. Yeah. It's wild for what it was at the time and it's amazing what can be done with it now it was people who actually know what they're doing with it but that that's actually they announced this year that that's being retired and they're going to replace it with a new platform so there you are in oklahoma you're going along at at any point did you think you're going to get uh deployed overseas i was waiting for it i couldn't you knew i I, I couldn't go fast enough i mean i said i i signed on the dotted line in 03 Right after the Iraq invasion, we'd already been in Afghanistan for a couple of years. It was like this is the thing I'm going to go do. Right, and I was frustrated at how long it took me to get there. Actually, how how long did it take you? Oh, the first time I flew over Afghan airspace, I think I was in my fourth or fifth year already. Oh wow! Yeah, it's a it took a couple of years to get on the road in the first place. Um, it took a whole other year after I got stationed in Oklahoma city before I was actually assigned a squadron and sent out to go do stuff. It, it was in a whole other year of training there. So I had the ground school specifically for my position on that aircraft. And then they sent you around to the other side of the base. And then there was a training squadron that was flight specific and you flew however many flights it took to get you spun up. So I did 12 flights out there, including my check ride, I think. So that whole process took a, another year so i didn't even get my patch and my colors and everything until i was already two years in all right patch and colors what does that mean uh, i don't I, I don't speak yeah. air force you yeah. gotta forgive me yeah uh, <clears throat> you get your squadron patch and then your name tape is colors that match so you get a matching name tag for your flight suit that matches your squadron colors and each each squadron had different colors so the 965th airborne air control squadron that i got to uh it was blue and gold with uh with white wings and they changed – I had a couple of board lieutenants that got way too deep into history, and they started messing with the patches and everything. We didn't really care that much for him. But it changed back and forth between the Falcons, the Golden Eagles, and whatever. It was the 965th. A, had, a squadron, yeah. is that equivalent to It's about a battalion? It's about 300 people. Okay. So that yeah. would be like around a battalion in the Army then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you go, you go flight where you have a couple of dozen people. You have several flights in a squadron and then you have the operations group and then a wing a wing would be more like a division then yeah I guess. yeah your your wing is about the one at uh, oklahoma city i think was about five or six thousand people so yeah okay. that's that's that'd be about your full division equivalent yeah. 
Okay. And in that wing, we had four operational squadrons uh, to deploy. The mandate was each squadron had to be able, within 72 hours, to kick 10 crews out on the road. So theoretically, the wing could generate a minimum of 40 crews in 72 hours. And then you had the operational support squadron, you had the ground training, the flight training squadron, and then there's also a guard. I think it's a Oklahoma guard uh, AWAC squadron out there as well. So there were five actual operational deployable squadrons. You get your orders to go. You know you're going. Now, where did you go to? Did you do any deployments overseas before you went to the sandbox? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my first one, I actually turned 21 in Manta, Ecuador. Really? Yep. I, I'd never heard that. Yeah, I went to Ecuador on my first trip, and I was fairly upset because the deport, uh, the deployment order for the desert crew didn't come down until we'd already built our crews and spun up and got ready to go. And then it was a last-minute kind of, oh, by the way. Really? Yeah. So we generated our three crews to go down south, and if you were on that crew, they just kept you there. And then they generated another five to go out to the desert a few weeks after we left. I'll be done. And then we all came back about the same time. And then from then on, it was a split. You either, you did one or the other, uh, either went to South America or you went to the desert. Uh, what, what, what were you doing in South America? Is that something you can really get into or? The counter drug, counter narcotics. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we were, yeah, we had two, two E3s and three crews down there. Uh, there was at least one tanker, uh, one KC-135, uh, down there at all times to support us. There's usually a P-3. Uh, sometimes it was the Coasties, oddly enough, the Coast Guard. Uh, sometimes it was Navy. And they would fly different stuff. And we would work either out over the water looking for stuff, uh, looking for stuff that didn't match up, or we would go over Colombia or actually go up into the Caribbean and we just watch for stuff that didn't belong there and we'd hand it off to the locals. We had what were called host nation riders. So we had a representative from Ecuador and we had a representative from Colombia. And when we were in the air... And they were on your bird. Yes, they were. And each one could look at the screen when we were in their airspace and that was it. And they could look at none of the others because all the other parameters were set up on all the other screens. But they well, were cool. they were there to guarantee that we didn't do anything untoward in one or the other. Right. And if they had to start prosecuting very quickly, we didn't have any Spanish speakers really. But these guys, we'd hand them a radio and they, we'd say, hey, this is what we see. This is what's going on. And then here we go. How often were you guys busting the bad guys? It wasn't often when I was there. I heard uh, I heard later deployments. I had buddies that told me that it got a lot more sporty. Like at one point, a friend of mine told me that uh, they got told to slow down because they were really? actually, they were burning routes. They were pulling people off of them so fast. Wow. So it's, it just kind of goes in waves. And I got some buddies now that have worked um, the various positions for CBP, um, Customs Border Protection, right on the north and the south border. And that mission overlaps quite a bit. Sure. Um, but... Yeah, there, there's it's it's ebbs and flows of how busy we get, uh, but the number of what actually gets stopped is fairly frustrating. So you, you had deployed. You're doing the job that you were trained to do. You're in Ecuador. You're overseas. Or, well, I guess south. It is really over the well over the Gulf. Yeah. Same time zone. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you enjoying? It? Did did you oh, did absolutely. you you loved the job that you picked? Yes. That is so cool because so many guys will go into the military and either A, they hate military culture or 
they they end up they don't like the job they picked and it's like man i wish i would have went into this branch or i wish i would have done that job but you were enjoying it there it was very technical and very challenging so it, i had i had everything from pull the circuit breaker and plug it back in and you could do that two or three times depending on the piece of equipment and if the breaker came out <clears throat> leave it alone to i had a couple of pieces of kit that needed physical adjustment and it was in the in the technical order that you pull X box out and hold it however many inches high and then drop it twice to break the carbon on the physical relays. In, that was in the technical manual. Yes. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. I fixed a SATCOM radio, uh, flying in the wake up orbit off the coast down there, uh, by removing a piece of kit and kicking it and then putting it back in and whatever was hung up inside popped back into place. <laughs> Okay, so I, in, in my mind, I'm imagining that most of the time you're getting on, you're, you're bringing it up, and then you're just kind of kicked back. They're doing – the other guys are doing their thing. Mm -hmm. If there's a problem, then you jump into action. Yeah. I'm guessing most of the time there's not. You're kind of along for the ride. You get back, you power everything down, and then you go do your thing. Is that pretty, pretty accurate? Much. Yeah, and it, it depended an awful lot on how the, uh, the mission crew commander was going to run – his crew uh it the divide the dividing line was the bulkhead for the uh, cockpit so you had the flight crew and then you had the mission crew and oftentimes the mission crew commander would outrank by a couple of steps the aircraft commander but the aircraft commander had ultimate seniority because safety of flight safety crew so and you were part of the mission crew yes yes i was mission crew so if I flew with mission crew commanders that wanted the technicians. So the, the the sweaties that did the power up, power down, and troubleshooting. We had a we had the radio guys. We had the guy that ran the computer network, and we had a guy that ran the radar. And those guys, if there was nothing to fix, we didn't really have a whole lot to do. So some mission crew commanders were fine with that. Others would hand us paper and pen and say, "You're going to record. You're going to make radio logs, and you're going to back everybody up." So you get done with that. How, and how long is your deployment? Six months? Do I have that right? No, uh, those were four. Uh, four th months. Those, those were on a four-month cycle. Uh, you'd, you'd be spin up for four months, deploy for four months, reconstitution for four months, and then just flying the home station stuff for four months, and then you start the spin up again. While you were in Ecuador, did you get to go out much, see any of the country any uh, of the culture, food? A, a little bit. Um, we could pretty well come and go as we pleased in Manta. So, you know, they were gouging us to charge us 50 cents American to take us into town. Um, the locals were like 10 cents. But every, it was odd because the the money there ran on U.S. currency, but they had their own coins as well. So they had like their own stuff, but it was a direct U.S. There's no exchange rate. But everything was still dirt cheap. So you could go out for the night with 15 bucks in your pocket and you'd have a rage in time. You know, it'd take you, take you 50 cents to get to town, 50 cents to get back from town at closing time. Uh, if you went on the right night, you end up at the bar that's a $12 cover and you get a wristband and you're good until 3 a.m. when they shut down. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. So you had, a, you had a lot of intermingling with the locals. Um, there, they had a lot of really good restaurants in town. Uh, there's a couple of casinos. There's some places that had riverfront stuff we could stop and hang out. Um, for my birthday, actually, a few friends got together and put together a trip, and we went a couple hours down the coast uh, to a place called San Lorenzo. It was a white sand beach. 
Oh, wow. And we got to hang out down there, and they, they cooked us lunch, and we just stayed away from the base, you know, sure. after after a couple of months. Was there much danger? I, you know, you hear about Ecuador and Central and South America, a lot of violence, a lot of, you know, cartel stuff. Was there, when like, when you would travel away, obviously they know you're American. Obviously they can tell you're military. Oh, yeah. What, yeah was, was there ever? There's no hiding that. Um, the There was some some active stuff up in the jungle uh not too long before i believe i got there uh a tanker crew got a wild hair and decided to go running up into the mountains a little bit and kind of see what was to be seen and they got snagged oh but darn yeah that was i think i want to say that was within about a year of me being there but as long as you stayed pretty close to town and you're fairly mindful i mean it's not most places I've been in the country, it's not a whole lot different than if you're going to go walking down Springfield or Chicago. You just kind of keep your head on a swivel, watch your pocket. Sure. You're fine. Most major cities, yeah. there's areas that are good and there's areas you want to avoid. Yeah. yeah. So you do your time in Ecuador, you come back to the yeah. United States, come back to Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did uh, Did come back to Oklahoma. About that time is when I had enough hours. I, I was experienced uh, and they started talking to me about or started looking at me for instructor in the next couple of years. Um, I actually went, did instructor upgrade before I went back out on deployment two years later. See, Ecuador was in 2007, and then 2008, I got to go to the desert finally. So I spent a year at home training, flying, doing whatever, TDYs all over the place. <clears throat> Most of our TDYs went out to, to Nellis, out to Vegas, because there's a big training range out there doing now, all the air-to-air. And, and again, I'm going to show my ignorance here, but I'm thinking how much different can it be whether you're chasing you know, narcos down in the jungle or over the ocean or you're chasing bad guys as far as your mission? As far as me, the calm guy? Yeah. No, it doesn't make a bit it's, of difference. Okay. Yeah, I'm still running the same kit. You're still, I'm still doing, doing the, my same the thing. Same, right. Yeah, I'm just a lot hotter until everything cools down when we take off. You know, I right. find I would find an excuse to go down in the forward lower lobe, and and then just lay on the floor for a while, the metal floor, because it's not heated down there. So once you get above about ten thousand feet, all that is cold. So you can go down there and lay there until you stop sweating. And then go back up. Oh, yeah, I didn't find anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to give you that snap cooled, cool you down real quick. Right, yeah. But, yeah, yeah the, the job itself is is the job on that. Right. Um, it, it was very different for the controllers and the surveillance guys. Uh, those were the fellas that were actually using the computer and using the radios and using the radar. There are several banks of these consoles, and they're doing different stuff. You had a surveillance section that would identify targets based on – certain parameters and if it was a bad guy they'd pass it off to the the officers and they were the ones that would direct aircraft to do whatever needed to be done intercepts whatever they'd label them um, as far as targets to people so you, you went to afghanistan first did you go to afghanistan and iraq no i never no. did iraq you were in afghanistan um, the the deployment to the desert the same cycle that I had deployed to Ecuador, they flew about half and half uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. When I got there the following year, uh, we did exclusively Afghanistan while I was there. Both t- both trips that I went, I did all Afghanistan. When, when you when your bird landed, you, you you come walking off and you're putting your boots on the ground in Afghanistan. What was your initial thought? 
No, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. When okay. I was flying AWACS over there, uh, we we deployed to UAE. Okay. So what, I was okay. yeah. What, so you, I was on the ground uh, outside of Abu Dhabi in okay. UAE. So first time there, you walk out. Now you're in the. You never been in the Middle East. You grew up. You know you're from. You're an Illinois corn boy. Yeah. You, you, well, um, what, what was that like? Hot. Hot. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We walked off of we walked off of an MD11 at about three o'clock in the afternoon local time. And MD11. I'm, uh, MD11 is just a big a big plane. Uh, it's the civilian version of the KC10 uh, refueler, the okay, bigger so, of the two refuelers. So Good it's, size. It's it's a big. Bird. Yeah, there we took we had about 300 people on that on that flight and there okay. was empty seats like that. The, uh, the contract flights that move military back and forth, they don't, they don't tend to do that with C-17s and things like that, uh, for the longer hauls anymore. They'll just contract say Omni or somebody like that. And they'll throw you on a jetliner and fly you over. So we landed on the ramp in UAE and I walked out and it just, it just hurt. It was so hot. I'd never been that hot. I walked into, went towards the squadron, a bunch of people veered off towards the smoke pit and I stepped in there because it was cooler in the shade, and they had a thermometer up there that said it was 118.5 in the shade. And I thought, again, what have I gotten myself My into? But you, uh, you get used to it. But it's, it's a dry heat. So it, it's it's, okay. Yeah, no, it's not. No. Because <laughs> well, you're right on yeah. the Gulf there. Oh, well, yeah. You're right on the Gulf. Well, I, I always say that as a joke yeah. because everybody, you know, well, it's a dry heat. I don't yeah. care. 100 and... Yeah, you can't pull off the Arizona joke there <laughs> yeah, because yeah. If, if you're up. So there's humidity there, too. If you're up before the sun and you're standing out and watching the buildings they're covered in condensation it just keeps building and building and building until all of a sudden it sounds like it's raining and it's all the condensation running off all the chews where everybody lives because everything's metal sided buildings so they're just gathering all that condensation it sounds like it's raining outside so when most people think of, of the middle east they think of you know vast deserts and <clears throat> the city palm trees i'm getting well, what's the vegetation like uh, you know um there's not a lot um any any vegetation that's in uae pretty much is manicured it's there because they want it there and they've got the money to do it I right mean, the emiratis are interesting they're an interesting folk the way they've got things set up in in uae it's pretty cool um like we've got states they've got seven emirates and they're the united arab emirates together and there's one prince that is in charge of all of it but all the emiratis are family and they've got an order number and they're only about 15 percent of the population i think and uh, the uh, entire hold on 15 percent of the population is what exactly emirati ethnic emirati they're from the emirates and they're all considered part of the royal family based on that hierarchy number and it's on their dry their, their plates on their cars so and everybody else is there to support them. Everybody else is what they call a TCN, third country national. They're there to work for them. Holy cow! See, they're some of the smartest people in that part of the world. They Every, got to figure it figured out. Everybody thinks that like Saudi, Saudi Arabia got oil money, right? So and the House of Saud, you hear that a lot. The House mm -hmm. of Saud. So when UAE struck oil, the majority of it is actually in. Uh, the the largest emirate where Abu Dhabi is, the Abu Dhabi emirate. Dubai is in a separate one. The Dubai emirate is a whole other one. Uh, most of the oil wells were in Abu Dhabi, so that's where the majority of the money in the country went. But instead of just doing all their crazy stuff and building up with the oil money, they reinvested it and they opened banks that all these people that live there now that aren't Emirati, they use. 
And so now all their money comes from the interest in all these banks. And there's a bank on two out of three corners of every intersection in Abu Dhabi. I'll be darned. It's wild. You know, <clears throat> being a submission grappler, you know, when I was doing jujitsu and all that, the, uh, you know, Abu Dhabi is, is one of the top grappling tournaments in the world. And they've been doing that for a long time, you know, getting, I think it was after probably UFC maybe came out or the Gracies were doing their thing. And then, but then you have submission wrestlers and you've got judo guys and you've got, you know, combat Sambo guys and well, who is the best grappler? So they would just, here's our rule set. And they would bring people in from all over the world. They had so many weight classes and, and it's considered, you know, one of the crown jewels in submission grappling. Yeah. And that's where they, they did it. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. It sounds an awful lot like the early UFC rules. Yeah. In fact, uh, one of the times that I was there, uh, was when, UFC came to UAE and, and did that. Matt Hughes fought there and everything. I, uh -huh. I was there when that happened. One of my buddies won the uh, the MWR, the morale, welfare, whatever, ticket, and he got to go. No kidding. Yeah, and he sat and sat and sat. He fought and fought and fought to get to the door where they'd all been coming out because he was he's from Illinois. This guy, Jim, was from Illinois, so he wanted Matt Hughes' autograph. Right. Matt Hughes came out on the other side, <laughs> so he didn't get to see him. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's the way it works. He still got to go. So yeah, it was that's, cool. That's that's he, cool. He, not only did he get to go to one, but he got to go to one in in, in UAE, which is fantastic. Sure. But so you go there first, then before you go to Afghanistan. Yeah, uh, I, I went there twice. Now, were you uh, flying missions there out of the UAE? You yes, were. we would fly out of UAE, and we would go around Iran and cross up. Uh, Pakistani airspace and into uh, Afghanistan and then we'd stay there for however long we needed to but it was it was a long day we'd average a couple of air refuelings each mission the longest one that I did we did three air refuelings because there was some stuff going on that nobody else could cover right so we just cool we'll stay up we'll cover it we'll take care because we weren't getting relieved like one crew after another we were just taking time blocks because various other stuff needed you know covered um, at the time they still had ground stations that were still doing a lot of stuff. They hadn't converted everything over to air. So we would cover when they would drop those down to work on them. I'll be darned. So you were flying pretty much all over the, the, that area then. And, and again, what, what six month deployment or that one's another AWACS. My AWACS deployments were all four. Were uh, all four. I, I did a six to Afghanistan and then I quick turned back to Afghanistan uh, on a different platform and that the second one was three because i quick turned but the first one was six how many tours did you do total while you were in the air force uh five four yeah. of them four of them are what i would i would consider combat because they were to the desert and then the first one was uh, south america without I, I i don't know how much all of this stuff's open source but whenever you guys would go up would you have i'm guessing you have to have some kind of fighter escorts not usually no we owned the airspace there. Like, we owned everything. Okay. Now, there... So, there you, was never any credible threat, like, air-to-air. -air. What about, like, a SAM? Was that ever... Yeah. SAM yeah. were an issue. And especially... Surface-to-air missile. Yeah, especially because when we're transiting up through Pakistan, who's always been our best friend, uh, we're traveling right along the eastern border of Iran, who just loves us. Sure. And, I mean, as soon as we take off, we're in the weapon engagement zone for some of their stuff that they have on the coast on the other side. 
and we're flying in that all the way up until we get far enough north into Afghanistan that we're out of their way. Did you ever have any uh, hairy moments where you guys got locked on or anything like that that you were aware of? No. 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 I did, I'd never heard anybody screaming in a high-pitched over that. So I, well, that's I, good. That would have been a thing that came up pretty quick. We did have a – I always called him I – didn't, I didn't care what his rank was. I always called him Lieutenant Rusty. <laughs> because when I met him, he was a lieutenant, and his first name was Rusty, and he was right. the nicest guy ever. He ended up getting into the specialty where it was beeps and squeaks stuff, and he was the one who was monitoring all of that while we would go off. What, now, what, when you say beeps and squeaks... Electronic what? spectrum stuff. Electronic spectrum. Um, there are various emitters for different things, say radar or radio. They emit in different parts of the spectrum, so you can get an idea of what it is. Uh, you've got location data that you can figure out, well, it hit us from over there, and it's along this line. Okay. So you can start. you can start to to direction find where some stuff is gotcha and based on the signals that you're receiving from them you can kind of you can go through a logic chain and figure out what it probably is okay and that's super handy because you get to develop an order of battle on what the other guy has laid out with that so that's fun uh they've got whole aircraft that are dedicated to doing that now like we were talking earlier about very early with the the KC-135 tankers, they started doing some sniffer stuff like that. Now they've got whole air, whole platforms that that's all they do. Awesome. Yeah. That, that That's cool. <clears throat> so you, you did five deployments, mm-hmm. coming back, going back. And this is in the course of uh, you, en- you re-enlisted, didn't you? Yeah. So yeah. did you do 12 or eight years? I did 10. You did 10 years. Yeah, I re-enlisted twice, and uh, I got halfway through my, my third hitch was when they came down in, in 13 and 14 with all those purges across all the services right. to try and draw people down. I think I met three of the wickets, so I ended up coming out. I've never been a small-boned gentleman, right? <laughs> and uh, I happened to have the sore luck of being born at just the right time to where I enlisted a few months after General Jumper, who was the chief of staff of the Air Force, had a heart attack. And so now, if you don't have a V-shape, you're fat, and you don't belong in the military, and we're going to fix you or fire you. And I danced along the fixed line long enough to get a pretty good career in, but I eventually lost it and got the fire. <laughs> so you did you did 10 years? Yeah. I did All right. 10 so- years, uh, deployed 17, or sorry, deployed 08, 09, and 10, all AWACS, and then... 12 and 13 uh, was with some other stuff, and that was actually in-country in Afghanistan. Uh, and you, you were doing some something different than what you were doing or yeah. similar? Or? I, I volunteered to jump onto another program. Uh, it was a big deal. They called it Project Liberty. Uh, it was basically just modifying a small King Air twin prop plane, like a business plane, and they stripped the inside out and put a bol- whole bunch of cool stuff on it, and I got to play with a bunch of radios and I got to deal with a very, very cool camera suite uh, hanging off the bottom of the plane. And all, all of that was tied together with moving map software and it, it was really fun. Let me ask you this. <laughs> if I go out there and I hide in the timber, I'm really good at that. Can you find me? Give me some time. You'll get me. I found a guy one time on the side of a mountain. He was wearing a dish dash uh, man dress. He was wearing a dish dash that was the exact same color of the rocks that he was in. They knew somebody was on that ridge because every time they drove somebody down the road at the bottom of the valley, they got hit with heavy weapons fire and RPG. Couldn't find anybody. They knew they shot from under a tree, but they couldn't find where they ran to. 
And I kept scanning up and down, up and down, looking around the tree, looking along the rock face. And I kept drawing my eye back to that rock face. And I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything. And in the daytime, of course, you're going to be looking in full color. Well, I switched to IR. And I start looking in infrared, black hot, up and down this hill. And all of a sudden, I see this little black pinpoint. And then it moves in a C shape. And it gets gets like bigger. I want to say brighter, but black doesn't get brighter. It gets right. bigger, and then it goes back in a C shape, and it gets smaller. Does that two or three times. Dude's sitting in the entrance of the cave, smoking a cigarette. That's where they had all of the stuff that they'd been shooting stashed in this cave mouth. And this guy was sitting in that cave mouth smoking a cigarette, thinking he was fat and happy. Nobody could see him. Did you get him? I left. The next crew that came in directed on a uh, a strike, and apparently he shot out of there like a Looney Tune cannon. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So it it's really interesting when you get used to what the picture looks like. It's really cool what you can see. I've been on the other end of that on a rotation one time, me and one of my sergeants. This is when I was down at JRTC in Fort Polk. <clears throat> and he and I just went. He do, used to do that. Come on, let's go. And it's in the middle of rotation, but they, they kind of let him, he was, you know, we, we did our own thing anyway. So me and him are out, we're walking and he's got uh, the nods, which back then were PVS sevens. I don't know what they're up to now. Oh, they're up to like Anvis twelves or thirteens yeah. now and they're white phosphorus now. Well, I, the first ones I had were PVS fives. That's the first set I had. And then when I got out the sevens, we thought those were just awesome. You know? Yeah. And we're walking along one night and all of a sudden he's like, you know, crap. We kind of, he jumps down and he's like, yeah. I'm like, what? And he's like, we're getting painted. Well, I'd never heard that term before. And I'm like, we're being painted. And he's like, yeah. And he hands them back to me. And I look. You're just standing in a floodlight that you can't it, see. It was unbelievable. When I put those on, I'm looking at a giant spotlight sweeping the ground. I pull them back off. I mean, you know, they don't have stuff like that. And in Illinois, <laughs> you know, I'm like, what is that? And you pull it down and you're looking and it, it, it just, it, it floored me. And it was, uh, I think that was an AC, AC 130 Spectre gunship that was up, you know? Yeah. And, uh, anyway, that was, I, I, yeah. So I've been on the other side of it, you know, in training, of course, but, uh, that, that was cool yeah. to see that. The, the IR flashlight's great. Like I've, I've used it to guide people down roads or like, no, 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 you're on this side and pull sparkle it or no, the bad guy's over here and hit him with a sparkle. Oh yeah. He's up on that. So ridge the, so the guys on the ground, you're talking to them and you're using IR from your bird to like, no, no, look, look over here and shine it. So they can, oh, okay, I got you. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yeah, it's just it's Whoa. just like using a laser pointer. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Can, can you, how high were you? Is that um, is that uh, I mean, is that okay to talk tell how high you were, or is that something you shouldn't say? I don't. I mean, I don't uh, know. We had to be up high enough that we were quiet. Okay, um, fair enough. But that's, that's that's enough. But we did. We worked lower. By and large, working in Afghanistan was lower than working later in in africa because of the noise the ambient noise and how used to planes they were the the who were the the indige the locals in in afghanistan Mm -hmm. okay because by by this time this was 2012 so we'd been there for 11 years sure there'd been planes everywhere all day every day choppers every kind of noise it's it's just part of the background noise now 
So we could work stupid low and they wouldn't pay any attention until they saw you. And I had that happen once. I had that happen. We're watching, we're looking for a guy and I'd been working this particular target. Uh, this is a story for later. We're getting into another airplane. Anyway, we'll, that's all right. we'll come back to that. Just, we'll come uh, back to that right. one. Yeah, we'll, we'll remember that one. Anyway, yeah, that guy was fun. So, yeah. Where were we before that? The two AWACS deployments? <laughs> hey, well, yeah, I, I'm losing track. Yeah, we're all over the place. That's all right, though. That's all right. Just tell that yeah. story because that sounds... That, okay, yeah, we'll jump ahead. Uh, so, at this point, I was on... Uh, the MC-12, which was the modified King Air. Yeah, we got to this. We were talking yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a modified King Air 350 with the sensor suite onto it and a bunch of other boxes, uh, some beeps and squeaks stuff. And so it was two pilots, me running the camera and the radios, and then another guy doing some other stuff. And then we had boxes on there that just passed through and we didn't touch. They just wanted them on. Um, so we had been working a village for about, or I had been working a village for about two weeks you could get assigned to a line on the schedule and certain lines went to the same customer every day. So I ended up on this same line for about two weeks straight, flying the same line, working the same village. And the guy was just excited to talk to me every day because he never gets assets. Like, Hey man, whatever you got, we'll find it. Let's go. Where are we going? We keep going to the same village. We're watching, just looking for anybody moving around building what they call pattern of life. Well, one day we show up, and like, he's not in there, he's over there. So we go a couple of miles away through this set of orchards and down this road, and there's a bend in a river, and there's a bunch of guys swimming. We're like, he's got to be one of those guys. Let's just see what happens. So we're watching him and watching him, see if anybody gets up and leaves. Maybe we can figure out if he's going to go back into the village. Maybe he's our guy. Well, all of a sudden, I see two of them get out of the water, and they're talking, and then one of them reaches over and grabs the guy on the shoulder and then I see his arm come up, and it disappears. He saw me, and he was pointing me out to his buddy. He saw our plane because we were cutting circles above him. We didn't leave. That was the problem. Holy cow. So he sees us. So I yell, holy yeah, whatever. Right, yeah. I'm like, hey, wings level now. Get clearance into the next box. We're going to go up 2,000 feet, and we're going to come back. My whole focus at this point is keeping zoomed in to stay on the one pixel that I can find of this guy. We got to be about 12, 13 miles away before we could turn back in. But when we rolled out and left, he thought we were just holding the pattern until we could move. Then as I'm watching them, they go back to doing their regular thing. It's just like the spook deer. If you leave, they think you're just a car. If you sit and watch them, they think something's up. Right. So all they saw was, hey, this guy was cutting circles, and he left. Well, then we come back. They pulled the motors back a little bit. We were coming in quiet. We were a little higher, so we were harder to see. We came in from a little bit of a different angle. And by then, I'm following two of the guys moving back towards the village. And then they get about through the orchards, and then one guy shakes hands, and he walks off through the orchard, and the other guy keeps going, and he gets into the village. And about every place, he stops going through that village. Somebody comes out, shakes his hand, kisses it, godfather-type stuff, showing deference is what we called it. Right. And then I follow him. So now him, you know he's somebody. And I follow him, follow him, and follow him right into the biggest compound in town, inside the wall, and then I follow him into where he slept. The next, gotcha. The next morning, I flew uh, a different line. The guy catches me. He says, hey, is this Leroy? That was my handle at the time. My nickname was Leroy because that stupid YouTube video, the computer games. So Leroy Jenkins was my name. He says, hey, is this Leroy? I'm like, yeah. He's like, hey, 
I put something in your jump server. And we had a we had a server that we could get out onto the secure internet and we could drop pictures or we could pull products, things like that. We could pull them real time. So I get in there and I look for the date and then I look for my line number and I open it up and it's a picture of two jacked up team guys pulling this little scrawny sucker with higher than his feet can touch the ground. They're dragging uh-huh. him up into the back of a Chinook. And that was about two hours before I took off that day. They'd been hunting that guy for months. And uh, how cool is that? Oh, man. You talk that's, about satisfying. That's got to be the most rewarding feeling in the world. Because, man, you're actually making a difference to the yeah. war effort. Oh, and dude. you're seeing it. When the, the nearest thing that I've been able to describe doing that, like the AWAC stuff was cool. That's what I joined to do. And when I got a taste of that, is heroin right oh it's I absolute bet. heroin like, I, I bet you you want to fly until you're out of fuel you you land and you chain smoke four or five and then all you want to do is you just want to go back up the next day you might get three four hours of sleep the next day all you want is you want another cup of coffee and you want to go yeah like you just you're, can't you're actually catching bad guys heck yeah dude yeah yeah absolutely that i guess yeah that was that was so much fun and you're playing with some of the most advanced coolest toys and then on the other end of that are some of the most baddest, intense, coolest dudes. And to be part of that team, I, I, I can only imagine how satisfying that would be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was definitely the like the little puppy in the back, just, I'm happy to be here, guys. This is fun. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know? that and, is so cool. And I don't know, I kind of, I wasn't the best but I kind of felt like I had an affinity for it. Right. And a lot of, a lot of it came natural. That's why I say, I feel like that's what I joined to do. Right. And it just took me a long time to get there, but that was a lot of fun. That was flying. Uh, both, both times that I went to Afghanistan, I was at Bagram air base just North of Kabul. And I called it the Bagram bowl because it was at, in, almost in the dead center at the bottom of this great big Valley, completely surrounded by the m- mountains. The Hindu Kush started and then pushed up North where empires go to die. Mm-hmm. You ain't kidding. I mean, historically, you look back. You know that. You know that is the, the it you know, breaks the, empires, the graveyard of empires, and sometimes that spooks me to think about. You know, yeah. Which we won't get into any of that. But. Yeah, that's that's a very long <clears throat> rabbit hole, right? But yeah, that that was man. That that was you talk about satisfying. Oh. That was incredible. But they so, they worked you to death, though. I mean, absolutely worked you to death, right? Like I, I had uh, July, July 2012, I had the first off and I had the 31st off. In a month period. Yeah. I was off on the first and I was off on the 31st. And that meant that I was the duty dog and I was taking out trash and I was going to get mid rats when the chow hall opened, go get the rations and everything and bring them back. And I was running around doing go for work and... Uh, because I was an NCO, they put me in charge of the schedule block that I was on. And then I also got stuck with the awards and decorations program. And the commander was trying to make his package look very good when he left there. So he, he was forcing medals. There's a point where you've got enough medals that it doesn't do anything, but he gets to put X number of medals for X number of sorties on his thing. So he, he was forcing that. So I was processing cause the Lieutenant didn't do anything, uh, roughly 200 to 300 air medals a week while I was flying every day while I was doing other stuff and trying to mentor and trying to learn. Cause you never run out of stuff to learn on that system. Right. There's always something new. I mean, when I, when I would land, if I would land in a piece of kit didn't work, I would ask 
the guy if if they had a little bit of time. Sometimes the plane was turning around within an hour and going back up. But if there was some time, I would ask him to wait, and I'd run in, and we'd debrief, and I'd grab two cups of coffee, and I'd go out, and I'd sit down with him and be like, okay, show me what happened and show me how to fix it. And give them the coffee, and that usually won me a little bit of credit. Uh, and they'd usually show me what was up. Uh, so I got to, I got to where people would like message me over the chat program when they were in the air or call me on the radio. Hey, man, it's doing this. What do you do? Okay, restart this box, reset this breaker, that kind of stuff. It's just interesting to me. And you're always fighting something. You're either fighting the airplane to make sure that you can take off because it's stupid hot and you have to your your fat plane has to get off the ground at over a mile up because Bagram was up there. Bagram was over a mile. So a lot of times in the summer we couldn't take off with full bags of gas because it was just too heavy. That, that's that's wild. That, that's a whole other part of the military that's just foreign to me, you mm. know. It, it, there's the familiarities. I mean, it doing the contracting work later – Every four to six months, you were dealing with a whole bunch of people that were brand new, and you're having to have this conversation with people that have never dealt with the aviation before. So you, you end up getting really good at getting really used to just laying things out and drawing pictures and stuff and trying to explain to them, well, no, in fact, we can't fly X number of hours there because it's twice as far away. So, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, let me let, – let's, let's get into – Africa, if if you're okay, I know we're sure. skipping ahead. Is there anything in between there? I mean, oh, uh, there's always know. more stories. Well, there's yeah. funny stories. Well, we'll there's bring ridiculous you back. We'll, stories. We'll, but yeah, we'll, you know that. Hopefully, you know you, you come back and <laughs> absolutely, we're kind of laying the groundwork today. Oh man, I but, feel special. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be on a series. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> so you come back to the states uh, uh, after yeah. uh, okay. Now you're out of the air force. Let's let's do that. So yeah. One, so let's, once your 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 time in the service is done. What are you thinking? What What's the thought process? What's the, did you have a plan immediately? Were you lost? Were you, what was, what was? Oh, I thought I had way more of a plan than I actually did, but it ended up being pretty well lost. Um, so I got out under honorable, but not voluntary circumstances because of the, the drawdown in right. 2014. So I got out all the benefits, no, no derogatory stuff, whatever. I just didn't really have a choice in the matter. Right. Um, but so you're honorably discharged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But absolutely. I, I was home when I didn't want to be. Right. Uh, I was home after being a grown man for ten years, doing some interesting stuff, and then I was back in the room that I had grown up in, and I was not sanguine with that. So the first couple of years were kind of rough. Uh, the first year was pretty slow. I got home too late to enroll in college, so I bummed around and worked farming and odd jobs and driving a truck here and there. And ended up in school, did that for a couple of years, wasn't going great. Um, majoring in? I was majoring in social work because I had this wild hair in the back of my head that all of my buddies would call me at two o'clock in the morning to talk when they were having a hard time. It seemed like maybe something that I could get paid for. Okay. The deeper I got into the program, the more that I realized that... Uh, that kind of conversation was not what I would have been having with people. Um, if I worked for the VA as a counselor, that generally wasn't going to be the type of conversation that I would have because those people have my empathy because they're my brother. I know them. Right. I care for them. I'm slightly less worried about people that I don't know. Sure. I think that's a human nature thing. Uh, kind of coming to terms with that 
being so at some point you figure out maybe i ought not be doing this line of work and it came around to where i was supposed to graduate pretty soon and i found out that there was this whole thing that we had to submit that they didn't tell any of the transfer students in my year group so when the teacher at the end said, oh, and by the way, I'm going to put this final project in all your portfolios, don't worry. And every single transfer student in the room's hand went up and said, what's a portfolio? I figured out I wasn't going to graduate when I was supposed to. Right. Well, that same week, a friend of mine from the service called me. He was working for a, a company called Commuter Air Technology. Uh, it's gone through a couple of different name changes and a sale. Uh, lately, it's called Matreya Special Aerospace. Um, but he called me and said, Hey, we're bringing cat five online. We're bringing our fifth plane online. Uh, we're going to be putting up a new site. You need to come work with us. Okay. Sounds more fun than what I'm doing. So doing what? Doing ISR, doing this, uh, information surveillance reconnaissance, information surveillance reconnaissance. That's what I was doing in Afghanistan, doing the the camera work and things like that. So basically doing the same thing that you did in the air force only for a private even on on the same type of modified aircraft using some of the same equipment like exact same wow that had to have been a great phone call it was amazing uh yeah um that had to have been like thank you god yeah so this is it i I realize now looking back on it that me leaving the military in the manner that i did didn't never sat well and i wasn't going to be good with it i wasn't done with the fight just that's a simple way to put it it's not like i'm a door kicker i'm not a i'm not a badass i'm a chubby nerd that happened to do some cool stuff and know a lot of really cool people but you, but yeah that but you were you're in the fight too though yeah yeah just on a different yeah, end I, just I, a different end i wore rattle every once in a while i carried a weapon yeah right uh, but i was not sanguine with getting told that i was done so the opportunity to go back and to do literally the exact same thing until i was bored it it fixed a really strict gear in here, you know. That is so cool. No, though. nobody gets to go back and say, "No, I'm not done. I'm going to do this until I'm done." Right. Uh, usually, people that do that, it's something that involves them going into the into jail. But I got to go do that and then leave on my terms this spring. So that that was amazing. That had to have been a good sense of satisfaction after. Yeah. <clears throat> so he calls you your buddy calls you up hey yeah. this is what we're gonna do okay yeah he says Great. hey uh we we need to talk to you uh we're supposed to interview um we set it set up an interview and i had a bare minimum of a resume they made you they made you to go through a program called taps when you get out of the, the air force where they teach you how to do a basic resume they make you show up for a week in business casual so you in fact have clothes to get a real job talk to you about what the real world's like because you have not been in the real world this whole time. And, uh, excuse me. Um, so I didn't have a resume really. I hadn't considered anything because why would I, you know, why would I study ahead, do anything intelligent? (laughs) Uh, so it turns out that he, uh, this guy, Brent and my buddy OG were going to be two of the three interviewers and the third interviewer backed out because of scheduling. So 20 minutes before the phone call, I get a message from Brent. He's like, yeah, the other guy dropped out. It's me and OG. We're just, you're good. (laughs) He just sent the resume up. So I still hadn't interviewed for a job yet. (laughs) But that's that's the best kind. It it was an interesting thing because the company that I signed on with uh, was a primarily naval aviator background. 
Okay. Which doesn't sound different, but it's the opposite side of a page from the Air Force. Absolutely opposite different side. Different lingo, yes. different, yeah. And keep in mind that naval aviator is a term that ascribes to both the Navy and the Marine Corps. Because yeah, they go, right. they yeah, are sure. they are naval aviators. Right. They are trained. They they operate off of boats. Like that's their thing. They're naval aviators. They're very proud of calling themselves that. I, I love it. I I mess with them so much. Um, but isn't the inner service rivalry great? Oh, it's so good. I it's, love it. It's it's great. Yeah. You know? The uh the the whole <clears throat> the picture of the Goodfellas or whatever where everybody's poking and laughing yeah. and then they're all standing there staring. Yeah. yeah. So we're making fun of each other. That's fine. Somebody who didn't serve says something and everybody tightens right up. You know, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, it, you haven't earned the right yeah, to say yeah, that, my friend. And, and what, what makes me so mad is when I hear these political generals that are trying to change this. You know, when I was in, it was big. They were big on the hazing. They were just mm. starting to complain about, like, when I went through uh, jump school, there will be no giving of the blood wings. Well, yeah, come on. You know. Yeah. When that's don't kill the culture. The culture is there for a reason. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and that's something that just, you know, but, but anyway, yeah. so I, I found that somewhat amusing. I've, I've got some friends that are still in and they're getting up there a little bit in the enlisted leadership. Um, and they're, they talk about stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, they're, you're, you're talking about this. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you, but you're talking about this in terms of a Fortune 500 company, not a not a unit that is in the business of killing people and breaking their shit. Right. And that is exactly. what the military is supposed to be. I'm not saying that some of the considerations that they're doing are are not warranted. You know, there's there's a point where too much is too much, and I I really like the idea that they were touting around about like the stratifications of like different jobs have different requirements. I love that, but that's probably not going to happen because that takes more brain power and more time and there's never enough of both right so i, I don't really know where it's going to go i'm just kind of glad that i don't have to navigate it at this point as a senior leader like some of my friends yeah that, that's a very succinct way of putting it mm. yeah i'm not a peopler <clears throat> yeah yeah there's a reason why i'm not a ceo or an officer or something like that i'm, I'm not that great about that i can sit and bs just fine but i don't i don't need to be dictating culture right so you get the call. You've got the job. I get the call. got the job. Where do you go? I, I get the call and get the job in March. They don't have anything for me until the end of May, which worked out great. Um, so I kept living off the GI Bill and double dipping on all the in-processing and the home side work that I get to do for them. And then I, I went in actually on a Friday morning at 9 a.m. I signed my name on a bubble sheet, handed it back to the guy and walked out of my last final without putting a single answer on it. And then you just walked in, signed your name and handed it back and said, see ya. And 23 hours later, I was sitting and sitting at the train station in Carbondale, getting ready to ride the train to Chicago to go to Africa. How cool is that? It's awesome. That's yeah. And that, that was interesting too. Like get it, getting over there. I'd never traveled internationally by myself before, uh, without like a military entourage type deal. So that that was kind of fun getting, Getting where I was going on the final destination was wild because we landed in we landed at an open air airport. Uh, it technically had three terminals, but it had three terminals because there were three wooden gates with the numbers one, two, and three on them. It was all one open air building that everybody sat in, and then you walked through it and out the other side, 
down a half mile path to the end of a pier and got in your taxi because that's the only way you're getting anywhere. And where was this? This was in coastal Kenya. Okay. So what was... <clears throat> how much different? So Kenya was the first place you went. That was your first... Yeah, I, I, I worked uh, in that area for about three years up until COVID. And then timing and everything just kind of shuffled. What, what did you think of Kenya? I was awesome. Absolutely beautiful. The majority of the people there are so nice. There's uh, everybody's very welcoming. If you try most places that I've been, if you try in the least to say hello in their language and you're very polite and you smile and you say thank you, just be generally good people like we were raised to be. Right. But a lot of people aren't anymore. Right. People love you. So you roll up and you, you try to rattle off a little bit of Swahili and ask them how is their morning and this and that, and you wave at them, you shake their hand, and you don't wipe your hand off because I've seen people do that. You shake hands with somebody and then wipe your hand off and walk away. Yeah, that's that's kind of a douche move. Yes, it is. But ah, it, I've, I've met very few people in Kenya that I wouldn't invite to say hello to mom. In fact, I brought mom over there, and she didn't meet a, a mean person either. Right. So There's a lot of... Uh... What what would you say is the biggest thing that you noticed in Africa that would surprise most Americans? Now, and I know I'm jumping around here, but you were not just in Kenya. Where where else did you go? Uh, I lived at least a month in Kenya, Uganda, and Djibouti. Um, I'm guessing of those three, Djibouti would be the least hospitable. Uh, sort of, but not probably in the way that you're thinking. Okay. Not so much that, see, Kenya bounces back and forth between being uh, majority Muslim and majority Christian. It's usually no more than a few percent one way or another. And the locals would tell us that you can tell when it switches because in their words, it turns to shit when it switches to Muslim. Right. Then it switches back after a few years, people move around, and then reforms start to happen, and people are generally nicer. Uh, so the thing about Djibouti being a Muslim nation is they're a very old Muslim nation. They had their Arab Spring years ago. Now they just, whatever, there's liquor stores there. They don't care. Really? Yeah. I'll be darned. Yeah, there's liquor that. stores, and like right next to a coffee shop that I used to go to down the street from the house, there's a liquor store. You go in there, and you get Jack Daniels. It was just 50 bucks a bottle because it was an import. Um, I will say that Uganda and Kenya were British colonies. Djibouti was a French colony, and it still has a very heavy French presence, including the French having a military base there. And if you look around what's happening in Central and West Africa right now, primarily, all of the former French colonies are popping off. Um, and I've done a little bit of reading and I've done some talking to some of the people that were a little older that I ran into that remembered colonialism a little bit in mm -hmm. Kenya. And it's colonialism. It's not fair. It's not even... You know, they were being exploited, they were being used, but the stories from a lot of the folks in the British colonies were not as, say, inflammatory as the ones out of some of the French colonies. So I think the French were a little more heavy handed. They were, and they tend to be a little more on the gray side of stuff anyway. I mean, you, you, you dig into the history of the 20th century, they, they did a lot of arms dealing on both sides of the fence that... 
they played a little fast and loose with a lot of stuff in the ways that uh, the NATO countries, I guess you'd say, didn't did, but were quieter about it. You know, that's a whole other conversation, right? But I mean, there was still a French uh, Mirage and Rafale fighter squadron there, flying off of the same same tarmac that we flew out of in Djibouti. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. French Mirage and so French Rafale fighters fly out of base there. there then. Yeah, they still have a full base there. Um, there's, I guess I could see that there's a contingent of Japanese there. I believe there's a Chinese base there. You can tell it's Chinese because every single antenna is facing towards the American base a few miles away. How, okay. I'm going to go down that rabbit hole there just a little bit. Everything I read is that the Chinese are heavy in Africa right now. Yeah. Heavy, heavy, heavy. And they're there for the minerals. They're there for everything they can get. What else would there be? Control footprint so the the chinese so we just talked about colonialism colonialism isn't cool anymore right what they do is called economic colonialism sure so what they're doing on the entire continent not just country by country the chinese are putting in road systems that are every every bit as good as our highways they're putting in railroads that are and they're updating railroads and they're laying whole new lines they're putting the arteries and the veins into the body so people can interact and things can move. And it's not so crazy that you have to take a water taxi to just go from one town to another. You might be able to drive on a regular road, but in order, but they're leasing this stuff to the locals. They're building it. They're footing the bill and they maintain ownership and then they're leasing use. So then they can use that as leverage down the road to start making inroads politically. And, also, we it's actually pretty dadgum brilliant. It's on the very China. smart. I mean, that, that's, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, yep. that, that's brilliant. And you see, it gets, it, it's not getting any of the press that what they're doing in the South China Sea is getting because that's military. Whereas the stuff that they're doing in Africa is just cutting checks and building stuff. It looks like they're doing nation building stuff. At this point, do, do you think, uh, you know, I'm not an isolationist, but I'm kind of an isolationist the older I get. Is it almost to the point where you just want to say, okay, go ahead and let them have it because of, of the problems? We, we've we've went down that path. We know what it's like to get in bed with countries and to fight wars for them and to prop them up. And, and then all they end up doing is resenting you. Yeah. And there's uh, there's a multitude of reasons for that. I, I think part of which, when you know, who, who are the ambassadors that you send out? They're yeah. young military guys. Well, who are the worst possible examples to send out from America to be ambassadors of America? Yeah, some eighteen year old with a gun. Eighteen to twenty five year old American dudes, because they're gonna they're gonna breed it. They're gonna fight it. They're gonna break it. They're gonna. I mean, that's what we do. Yeah. And uh, so I, I know there's a lot there, and there's a lot of natural resources and we want to keep in good graces with a lot of but but yeah you know what i mean to me sometimes it's just like well let the chinese have their shot at it because in in 20 30 years the africans are going to hate them or the middle eastern or whoever it doesn't matter what group it is because everybody hates us yeah. well, let them start hating the chinese for a while yeah well that, part of that too i like i like that uh that everybody hates us they don't really no, I, this has been my personal experience. Okay. And this is my personal experience in the States as well as being overseas. As far as what the media tells you that everything is in this exposition, it's not, it's a little more towards why. Okay. 
It's like the last three years, everybody around here has been, oh, it's the worst and everything's coming apart and everything's burning. And then you just go out and you talk to people and everybody's just living their life, raising their kids and going to work. Well, overseas, it's a lot of the same thing. You know what I didn't hear at all about in Djibouti? It's COVID. The only place that I had to worry about any of that BS and all the masks and the sanitizer and everything is when I went onto the U.S. base. We lived in town. It's fine. You wear a mask if you want. Don't if you don't want to. It's on you. You're a grown-up. Figure it out. It's fantastic. Being treated like an adult. And well, What a novel idea. Yeah, it's weird. What a novel idea. Yeah. But getting back in, into as far as like what I thought of, DJ was the only place that I ran into a situation where I was uncomfortable between okay. the three. Now, granted, I didn't do a whole lot of out and about uh, right. for most of, most of the time in Kenya. We were pretty well restricted to a very small area. But I did get to do a little bit of traveling and around. And, I did, and I, like I said, I took my mom there and did a safari and did a little bit of running around in Nairobi. Um, but for the most part, I didn't find anybody that really disliked us. But in Djibouti, a couple of us went to a bar one night and one of my friends had imbibed quite a bit and he bumped into this older local gentleman. And he turned around and immediately apologized, shook hands with the guy, asked him how he was doing, asked, offered to buy him something to drink, something to eat, whatever. And everything was fine. But the younger dude, his eyes got big like a horse is fixing to buck, and they stayed that way. And he's watching. And he's watching and watching and watching my buddy. And he's like, it's like you, you see his, he start to get jittery, his eyes are rolling. And, and it's, all, it's like, you, I don't know if he's fixing to do something. But he looks like he's got a really stupid idea in his head. And to this day, my buddy says it doesn't happen. It didn't happen because he didn't see the guy. Right. But all I did was I just sat on the bar stool next to my buddy. He's facing the bar stool or facing the bar. And I'm sitting at an angle facing the guy. And I had a pocket knife and I just pulled it out, opened it and laid it against my leg and just kept tapping it to where he'd notice it. And he turns and looks at me, looks down, just looks down at his food and there's never a problem. I'll be darned. But that's the only time in Africa that it happened to me. Huh. And that was in Djibouti. Yeah. And I know Kenya, you, you've told me that you that you really enjoyed Kenya. Oh, yeah. Kenya was beautiful. What's their food like? A lot of it is very simple. Um, we got we got stuck uh, one day. We had an issue with a plane, and we got stuck off-site uh, with some liaison guys. They were local guys, but they had been vetted through the State Department, and they were kind of our fixers for that specific area. And we got stuck there, and we couldn't bring the plane back to get it fixed. And so we were just kind of stuck until they figured out how they were going to move us or what was going to happen. And these guys were so nice, absolutely wonderful people. Um, one of the fellows, Robert, ran home, and he grabbed lunch that his wife had cooked and brought it to us and would not let us say no. Like literally ran, physically ran. No, oh, no. He, oh. got, he got in his car and he went, but he, he ran. He well, ran I, home. I, it shows my ignorance. I think of Kenyans because <laughs> they're always winning all the, the marathons, you know, and I've seen the commercials where they're always running. So, I, you know, I mean, I know obviously they have electricity and cars. I'm not that. Naive, <laughs> but that's just, no, the, this, that's just what I envisioned when you said that. this, this was at, uh, uh, this was in Mombasa. So it's the second largest city okay. in, in the country. Nairobi, the capital is the biggest. Mombasa is the second largest. And the international airport there, sometimes we would use it for a hub or to get gas or just stop through um, if we needed to. And we had th these guys, liaison guys that worked at a building there that we would pull up to. And 
yeah, they just, they put us up for the day. They went, Robert went home and got food that his wife had cooked and brought it to us. He told us what everything was. He said, these vegetables are good. These vegetables you you don't eat because they were cooked and uncooked. Like they, they ate the, un, the uncooked ones, but they're like, if you want vegetables, you eat the cooked ones. We don't want you to get sick. But it was chicken in a pot and like stew, uh, whole chunks of chicken and the like... It's almost like uh, collard greens. Mm-hmm. And there's something that almost had the consistency of potatoes. I can't remember what it is. It's like a root vegetable. But, yeah, you just kind of pull it off and you have a, like potatoes almost. Like if you palmed dry mashed potatoes. But, oh, it was really good. Huh. It's very simple. They have they make something, a, a bunch of places in that part of the the world make something called a samosa. And it's like a mix of meat, seasoned meat and onions and whatever you feel like putting in it. I've had it with beef. I've had it with uh, chicken. I've had it with fish. And I've had it stuffed with cheese, like feta cheese and fennel. And it's almost like a triangular little ramen, or not ramen, uh, crab rangoon thing. But it's kind of round and they deep fry that. And oh my goodness, it's so good. Now, do they have beer? In yeah. Kenya, they have beer and wine yeah. and all that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They, uh, we primarily would run across uh, Tusker. Uh, that, that was one of the locals. I, I got away from drinking that when I found out that it had formaldehyde in it. That's yeah. why you get a pretty good hangover yeah. from it. Uh, then they had one that was a little bit lighter, and it's called White Cap. And on the, on the label, it had uh, the three peaks of Kilimanjaro on it. That one was pretty good. So <clears throat> did, could you see Kilimanjaro from where you were? No, we were a little too far north. Uh, when we would fly back and forth to Nairo- like from the coast to Nairobi, you you would see it from the plane. I got pictures of it from the plane. And then where I took my mom on safari, the camp was I think about fifteen miles from the foot of it. Oh wow! So you got- so yeah, you'd walk out onto the porch of the tent, and I say tent. This is- glamping is definitely how this was set up okay like it was a canvas tent like you'd expect to see on like a victorian safari but sure. you you walk in and the whole thing's finished polished mahogany wood floors i've seen i've queen seen size bed yeah yeah so yeah tent camping all right but you walk out onto the porch of this thing of a morning and you're looking across the the savannah to kilimanjaro as the sun's coming down it and lighting it from the curvature of the earth. And we did That has to be cool. It was overcast the first two days we were there. And then I woke up about 6 a.m. the last day, and our driver had messaged me and said, you must come outside now. Killy is out. And we go outside, and it's the first time that it's been a clear morning, and we watched the sun come up and hit Kilimanjaro. It was fantastic. That was beautiful. It, when I Everybody told me when I my first duty station, when I came home, not everybody. I talked to a couple uh, guys. My, my uncle had said something to me about Mount Rainier. So same thing. I get to Washington, I land, I'm looking around, you know, I, <clears throat> after we get to the base, mm-hmm. you know, you get checked in at night and all that, get up the next morning. They had us running around in process and doing this and that. And so that evening you got, you know, some downtime, I go find where the PX is and, you know, you're kind of familiarizing yourself cause I know I'm going to live here for a while. Yeah. I don't see nothing. And I'm looking around, I'm like, you know, where, where's, same thing. Of course, you know, that part of the country, it's rainy a lot. Yeah. And it was, I, I don't remember how long I had been there, but I, I remember one day I was walking down a sidewalk and I just happened to look up and boom, there's Mount Rainier. And it's just the same <laughs> the, thing. He's like the first clear day you've had since you got there. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that is cool. 
So yeah, yeah I can imagine what, you know, that's such a pretty part of the country too. I got, I got to go up there for a week, uh, on a TDY with AWACS, uh, flying out of Fort Lewis McCord and, uh, AWACS being AWACS. I only flew one day. Uh, it was broke the rest of the time. So we basically ran around Tacoma and down into Seattle. We tried to go up to Mount Rainier, but there'd been a mudslide and we couldn't get up that side of the mountain. Uh, yeah. Absolutely gorgeous country out there. It is. It's 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 beautiful. And it was lucky enough to be before Seattle completely went to pot. <laughs> and it's I, I don't say it's just a shame what's happened out there. You know, I got a buddy that lives out there. He actually lives on one of the islands in Puget Sound. Yeah. And you know he loves it because there's you know there's a ton of stuff to do you know if you like to salmon fish and hunt and he's a scuba diver and oh yeah yeah which we got, I got scuba certified when I was was up there and me and my buddies we'd go dive the sound and get crabs and it was just you know it was it, it was it was a fun time so <clears throat> back to Africa you've been those are the three places that you that yeah. you mainly stayed how many. Now, when you're working for a private company, did you work for the same company the whole time? It might have changed names, but was it basically the same? Yeah, I was on the same contract. Yeah. It's a it, it's a deal where you it, – it's – what do they call it? It's at-will employment, so you can part ways at any time. It's an open-ended contract. Okay. Um, so they can go through the HR wickets and fire you, or you can just say, hey, this is my last trip. See you guys later. Like you, you can break ties at any time. Now I'm going to use the term deployment. When you would go overseas, I'm calling that a deployment. How, how long would would you be? It, it depended. Uh, I signed up for 60 60s. So theoretically, you would do 60 days on site. So 60 days, that bed was your bed. Okay. And then you had an opposite that you were paired with. And the other 60 days, that was their bed. And they would show up the day or the day before you left. And then you would show up the day or the day before they left. So you basically hot racked it. Like you, you 60 days at a time. Yeah. Um, that's what I signed up for. Uh, the first few years until COVID, it pretty well stayed that. Um, then when the airlines started to shut down and countries stopped letting people come through and they started shutting down airports, it basically locked down all the travel. Um, and the guys who were downrange got stuck downrange. The guys who were at home got stuck at home. And when you live on a – primarily, you're getting paid your day rate. So if you're not out that day, like you're not downrange or traveling to or coming back from, right? you're not getting paid. You get paid a day rate for the day that you're there. That's it. So when you're home – You're not getting you're, paid. You're, you're, and you were home? I was home. Oh, man. that's. Uh, I <laughs> It's going to sound ridiculous. So I got back from Iceland – on a Monday and they had closed everything down the Saturday before. So I was in Iceland for 10 days with a bunch of friends that I grew up with for a wedding and they locked it down while we were there and we rolled the dice and didn't change our tickets because nobody could afford to change their tickets the day of. Uh, so we rolled the dice and we were the last flight back into Chicago that night when we came back. The only people that we saw in that airport were the people who came off the plane with us and a couple of people around the baggage claim and then the CDC reps that were handing out papers and checking everybody's temperature when you came through, and that was it. That had to have been freaky. It was really weird. Because that was O'Hare? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that was O'Hare. 
at one time that was the busiest airport in the world. I don't know if it still is, but it's yeah. one of them. I think that bounce around between Heathrow and a couple other ones now, but yeah, but it's, it's in the top five yeah. easily. I, I mean, easily. And I mean, well, I mean, it's it was a direct flight from Reykjavik, you know. So that tells you. So you went from Reykjavik straight to yeah. yeah. It's a six-hour direct flight. If that tells you, anything. it is an international airport, and a lot of times I flew straight from. I, I didn't fly often straight in or out of the country from Chicago. A lot of times I bounced through Detroit or Minneapolis uh, or Atlanta. But, yeah, I've, I flew a few times in and out directly out of Chicago. So it's a, it was very unnerving to see someplace that just should be busy not. Right. But uh, That's freaky. That whole time period was weird. You're looking <clears> – <throat> of course, we've got the lens of – Oh yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. Exactly, and we can look at all the mistakes that everybody made, and you know. But that was just that. That was a bizarre time. I can remember. I I just you know working. At, I was working at the prison, and you knew, I knew it was. I've been waiting for that though. As crazy as that was going to make me sound, waiting for something to break. I, off. I just well, especially a pandemic. I, in my mind, I've always said the pan, a pandemic is what's going to kick off this pinch point in history that we're at. That's going to cause you know, yeah, greater societal turbulence. Well, if nothing else, almost every movie starts with a pandemic well, or yeah. a natural disaster or one then the other. But I've always been, you know, I've kind of been waiting. And I remember the day I was up on the serving line in uh, at the prison in the dietary, and they they see inmate movement, and here come the IEMA trucks in. The Illinois Emergency Management Agency, they were setting up tents into the gym. They were going to put them on the yard, but they, anyway, they ended up putting them in the gym because, you know, climate control is, you know. Yeah. And the chow hall was quiet. I mean, between the convicts, the staff, all of us, we're watching those trucks roll in. And I thought, man, this, and we're hearing about how bad it is, how many people are dying in China. And then now there's cases in Seattle and, you know, Illinois has got the first cases, you know, and it's starting to spread and you're hearing this. Yeah. It's almost like you're watching a heat map expand. Exactly. And you know, it's coming. And, and I can remember I would come home, come into this garage, take my clothes off. I would get changed. I would go straight in. Nobody touched me. I'd go in, I'd throw my clothes straight into the laundry and I would jump right into the shower mm-hmm. and I would scrub off. And I remember calling my doctor cause I was on, I'm on blood pressure medicine and I'd read, you know, early reports off the internet, which there's so much disinformation out there. And we try to, you know, go through it and figure out what's, what's right and what's not. But I'd been reading about my, the medicine that I was on for my blood pressure at the time that people were having some bad reactions. Right. It was really, it, you know, so I wanted to switch and I can remember, well, she was kind of, well, and I, I can remember at the time telling her, it's not if I'm going to get this, it's when. Yeah. I mean, you're basically like, you're, you're actively putting your hand on the stove every day. If you're going to get burned. I, I am, I am in an environment where, where humans are on top of one another. We are warehousing human beings. Yeah. And I'm walking into that and I am, I'm a, you know, I'm a ground soldier. I'm a guy that I'm dealing with inmates face to face daily. We're wearing, you know, at first, you know, we were gloved, uh, you know, or the mask. Everybody had to wear masks, you know. And and like I said, a lot of that looking back now, we realize how silly it is. Because you think, how can you fight something you can't see? Yeah. 
I, I just thought, thought it was so funny with the masks that they knew that masks didn't work a couple of weeks into the thing and they would show the graphics of it on TV, but then those disappeared and then all they showed was the graphics of how bad sneezing and coughing spreads. And, and, and you wonder, I guess it's just control. I guess it just must be control that, that people want to, you know, force that. But, you well, know, whatever. If, if you think about it, that's a pretty impressive flex of power that they were able to shut down not a region, not a country, not a continent. They were able to shut down the world in a matter of days and keep it that way. It's scary. Yes, it is. It's scary to think about, uh, you know, but yeah, there's here, a whole, here we are. There's a whole lot of, of, of wild logic chains and things that you can follow from that and implications as to, well, if it works this way in this system, if you follow the same model in this other system, you get this output and yeah was it planned was it not planned was it accidental did it escape you know there, yeah. there's so many yeah did, did you just hear about this lab they busted in california I, I busted is the wrong word there is a lab in california run by the chinese that the, the guy that runs it is a wanted fugitive in canada oh really he, he's chinese i don't know what he's wanted for in canada has a lab where they went in, they being, I believe it was the FDA, and found active Ebola and HIV in there. Ugh. This was two days ago. I read read this article, and and so, and, and what's being done? What, what what are they doing? It's just like, how did this get set up? There's many people that work there. I don't know how large the facility the facility was or any of that. I didn't get it, you know too into the details. How are we allowed? And you know, it's not the only one. Yeah. You and know? I kind of wonder how many of the people that were working there thought it was a legitimate business. Like well, that, and that, that kind of be. stuff. Like, right. The back end knows what's going on, but the front end thinks we're yeah. a lab doing whatever. Yeah. They could just hire a bunch of interns out of college. Hey, sure. do this stuff, do these tests, do X, Y, and Z. They don't know any better yet. Right. You yeah. Know? And it could be. It very well could be. Yeah. But that, uh, yeah, that, that year was wild. Yeah. So that, that was right so after. So now you're home. Well, that was that all started about a, a month, two months after I came home from a trip. I came home at the end of February, or beginning of February. March and April's when all the lockdowns. Yeah. yeah. So I went out December 19, and I was out over Christmas and New Year's, and then in January where I was got hit. Like they they came down across the dirt road border from Somalia and just wrecked that fly line. And I heard from your dad that there was one line on the ticker at the bottom of Fox News about it. And then when I came home and I stopped and visited him, he gave me a uh, news article that I think he pulled out of the Decatur Herald Review. Is the only article about it that I've ever seen. It just didn't happen. And that's right where you were. U.S. servicemen died. They came, they came, set up in the woods, and just started wrecking the place. There's a plane fixing to take off, you know, and so they they hit the plane with an RPG. They hit the truck with the the military guys uh, watching it. They cleared the runway and cleared them to take off. They what, hit them with an RPG. Was there an airborne infantry unit there from the army? They dropped in after. That that some guys got killed. In an airborne infantry unit that were there, 
like no. stationed there? You're no. you're thinking uh, a couple years before there was the special forces team in West Africa. They went out and okay. prosecuted a raid. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was just a raid, not a series of raids, with some indige. And then they were heading back. I think this was in Niger. They were heading back to base. They got word that there was a pop-up time-sensitive target, and they decided to go get it, and it was an ambush. And all their indige left them, and they got rolled. So that yeah. changed a lot of the calculus of what we had to do because at the time President Trump – uh, decided that no one can go out the wire in Africa without over Overwatch, so that changed the game significantly. You had to have somebody overhead with a camera on you, or you couldn't go outside. Kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Which you say what you will about how much safer everybody is now versus how much safer or how how dangerous it was for the soldiers fifty, hundred years ago. They didn't have those rules, and they got a lot of stuff done. But we weren't letting these guys who are absolutely the bleeding edge of a spear. We won't let them take the sheath off. So what was your overall mission for you? I mean, I know you were doing basically the same thing, but can you get into what what the mission set was? Why? Yeah, is essentially the cookie-cutter exact same thing I was doing in Afghanistan. There are terrorist units. Um, a lot of them are affiliated. You know, you, you, the old names, you had the Taliban, and you had uh, Al-Qaeda, and you had all of these. You ended up with ISIS and ISIL or whatever – LMNOP name they came up with before they got all tore up. Um, I just blanked on the name of the guys that I was hunting. Al-Shabaab? Yeah. Is that? Al-Shabaab. Yeah. I kept wanting to say Haqqani, but that was one of the Afghan networks. So uh, Al-Shabaab apparently was supposed to have a loose affiliation with uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, most, mostly finance, I think. But... They were, they were supposed to be kind of buddy-buddy, and they, they have been operating in Somalia and trying to get into the surrounding countries for a very long time. Like you're talking, that's like, I think that was an evolution of the warlords that they had to deal with uh, around the time of the Black Hawk Down incident. Like mm-hmm. it's an evolution of that. Right. Um, so they would cross the literal dirt road border into Kenya and mess stuff up or you know chase people down uh one of the one of the trips that i was there we got restricted to base because a few miles out they they got within i think 15 miles of the base and started taking heads like they would just walked up and said are you a christian yes so we got restricted to base we couldn't go to town anymore then yeah. um but these guys these guys set up and they they were watching for a while. They kind of they got the lay of the land, and they 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 hit the plane, and they hit the the truck with the two servicemen in it that were doing the the airfield management stuff. Uh, they were clearing them for landing and takeoff, ATC stuff, and they basically burned every plane that was out there to the ground. Um, so it was a successful raid on their part. Pretty much. I mean, they were, they were stand. they posted pictures on Twitter while they were standing next to these planes before they burned them. How safe did you feel when you were? <clears throat> Safety wasn't a part of it. I was pissed. No, 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 no. Uh, in general, not just this incident prior, prior to this, whenever you were living in Kenya, Uganda, Djibouti, Obviously, I'm, I'm guessing there was a military presence where you were. Very Either. minor. Like, it was 
basically the camp that I was on was the presence. So did the locals knew know what you were doing? You really can't hide it. I, well, I and, mean, obviously, and you're we, not telling them. And but. we were we were a uh, we were a compound on a Kenyan base. So a, a Kenyan we, military base, yeah, okay. Kenyan naval base, and they had a uh, they they had a a pier on the water that they were supposed to tie their boats up to, and then they had a small airstrip, and we operated out of the airstrip. So we we worked. So you know how the a lot of what was set up in Vietnam was supposed to be advise the indige and teach them how to go do it. Right. Primarily that's Africa. We're supposed to be an advisory force. Okay. So there there's folks that are places working with people to train them and teach them. They're the door kickers, so to speak. The yeah, the door kickers are teaching people to kick doors and then we're there to just kind of help. I got you. Um, so most of most of what I did was more of that what I was talking about pattern of life. So they think somebody in this village might be a bad guy. Okay, well we'll go watch that village for the next month and see if anybody shoots somebody in the face or if anybody does something crazy. It, it a lot of it I think comes down to a little bit of a sixth sense and just being familiar with people and their behavior. You can kind of tell when somebody's acting a little squirrely. So you can tell when somebody's acting squirrely through binoculars. You can tell if somebody's acting squirrely through a camera. So you see somebody that keeps looking over their shoulder, sure. and then yeah. they walk over and uncover something. That's yeah, probably not something they're supposed to have. Right. It's not a birthday cake for his wife. Right. So, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> stuff like that or right. stuff like the guy with the, the cigarette on the on the side of the mountain. It's like I, I always kind of seem to find the right spot yeah. to look. So I don't, I don't really know why, but it just kind of felt that way. Yeah. But most of most of what they were doing was just kind of – I was doing Paul Blart stuff, you know, observe and report. I would report to the the U.S. advisory forces, and then they'd say, hey, you guys did – you said you did this, but I know you did this. I've got pictures kind of thing. Or the indige would go out, and they were supposed to check out a village, so we'd go watch the village, and then the guys were sitting back. They weren't supposed to leave the compound. So they're watching our feed and we're showing them where the guys are and we're identifying everything you'd see on like a sand table. We're finding the front forward edge, you know, we're finding the line, we're finding the vehicle drop off point. And showing I would think, I, I would think you guys would have been targeted more. We're just, we just, like I said earlier, we flew a lot higher in Africa because it was a lot quieter and they weren't so used to seeing planes. So you had to just be way up there and it's not really a factor then. I, well, I didn't mean just that, but I mean also like if you went into town. You, I mean, yeah. I know you weren't broadcasting, hey, this is who I am and this is what I do. You're not telling no, people, but, but I would think they would. absolutely were obvious everywhere we went. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm thinking they would know. Yeah. Uh, as it turns out, the uh, the 45 or 50-year-old American isn't much different than your description of an 18-year-old sometimes. Yeah. So you'd see you'd see those guys every time we went to town. It's like, dude, you need to just, just stop. One, <laughs> one notch, please. <laughs> But um, yeah, yeah. It, it was that way though because we'd get stuck on that camp. We'd be we'd be stuck on like a ten acre camp for our two or three month rotation. You know, it's kind of like people going stir crazy on a boat. You know, sure. How, and how many uh, deployments did you do? Rotations, whatever, to Africa. Oh, it should have averaged about three a year, but COVID screwed that up a little bit. Um, Somewhere around fifteen or sixteen trips. That's a lot. 
Um, I was supposed to be doing 60-60s. I did a five, a couple of fours, a bunch of threes. Um, and you and you got to get out under your own whenever you just how, – how, how did you make that decision? How I'd, did you know it was time to walk away? I, I've done enough uh, for God and country. I'd been on the fence uh, kind of pre-COVID. I was thinking maybe it was about time to go do something else. And then that reset everybody's priorities for a year or two. And all I really wanted at that point, because I got stuck on the home side, all I wanted was some cash. So I couldn't wait to go. Sure. I did my five-month trip. And, and after. You, make, you guys make good money doing that. We didn't you? do too bad. They, yeah. uh, that was the my favorite part of it compared to doing the exact same job in the Air Force was contracting. They pay you for your worth, not your rank. If they wow. don't pay you enough, you leave because it's at-will employment. Yeah. So I was make I started out making fully three times what I made as, as an NCO doing it in the Air Force. This is just, just bananas to me for somebody who grew up in this area, and you know what I mean, like the, right. the standard of living, the the is very low, the here. income, yes, yeah, it's compared to it's it's silly, yeah. like it 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 becomes a number at that point, and I I'm not a wealthy person, right. Like, I don't, I don't consider myself a wealthy person. I, I'd made quite a bit of money. I pissed a lot of it away. But I also, the farm's paid for, my Jeep's paid for, my bike's paid for. You know, I, tr- I tried to not be a complete idiot with it. But they pay you pretty good. Right. They pay you pretty good. And I've, I've got buddies that have been doing it for 20-some years. They're like, why? <laughs> could, could you ever go back to doing it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's always on the table? Yeah. And uh, is there like a window that like that if you get to a certain point in the age they'll be like and eh, we kind of got these younger guys we're doing they're straight out of the air force and we're using them oh uh, maybe um maybe but i'm still well within my window right i mean I, w- I was out there with guys who were in their upper 50s and into their 60s like i was out there with guys who um if they came back to the states with their pilot ticket and tried to get jobs they wouldn't have for that reason but because they still had a valid ticket. They had lots of experience, and we needed people that could come fly for us, and that was fine. So I had a buddy. I called him Grandpa Jack because he was at least 67, like just old guy. He talked like this on the radio. Yeah. I'd, I'd mess with him all the time. He's a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. But Well, that's cool. So, yeah, I'm not going to age out of it anytime soon. I It's on the table for me to go back again just in the front seat. Just cause that's, could you pick a different theater? Technically, uh, I could go, if I tried to say, get back on with Matreya, if I tried to get back on with the same company, I wouldn't necessarily have to apply and go back to Kenya. I, I would just apply for a job position and that could be at any, anywhere that they have a program running. So I could do CONUS stuff. I could go back to one of the Africa sites. I could go to CONUS, uh, continental United States. No, I know yeah. what it means, but they, they run stuff here. We had a, a special programs unit. And like I said, they, the company's, uh, background like your origins was in naval aviation so a lot of the guys on special programs would either test new configurations or pieces of gear uh, before it went out okay okay and they would take those planes to do exercises i, th- I thought for a second you were like no yeah we're watching americans do uh, oh yeah, absolutely okay. not all right, all no. Right. no i got you i got you You're, no it's all testing and yeah R&D uh, type. A, a lot of what the guys uh in the special <clears throat> program did was they would go to like the big marine exercises out west they, sure. they'd go and support those right um 
because I honestly think primarily because a lot of our, our senior folks still had contacts in the Marine Corps because they, they never really did anything that, I, that I'm aware of. They never tried to get into, say, the red and green flags at Nellis because that's a whole different contract. Right. Like trying to get a contract for the Army versus the Navy or Marine Corps or Air Force. Well, Navy, Army, Air Force, is just, they're completely different animals right. to try yeah. and get. But, yeah, they, they would do some of that stuff in the States. I thought about trying to do that, but I, I got really used to when I was off, I was off. I like I like that. You're never going to have better than half a year off. You have a job that you have half a year off, but you can afford to live. That's amazing. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so That's, much time for activities, you know. Yeah, yeah so many activities. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is, that is awesome. And so you got out, and now here you are. You're going to school. And uh, what's the next chapter going to be? Oh, shoot. Who I don't knows? know. Hopefully flying somewhere. Who knows, right? Like I said, the, the bachelor's degree is in management, but as I'm doing it, I'm also going to pick up. I'm on a waiting list for an associate's degree, and that's in flight specifically, and that'll get flight tickets, uh, pilot licenses, and all that. So you'll, you will not only be a pilot, you will also have a degree in management as well. Yeah. From for, a, for from aviation. A, from a very specific aviation mindset, yes. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so that's going to be really cool. How many years is it going to take to? It'll be about three. About three more. Yeah, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna more than run out my GI Bill because I did two years and then that I'm doing the traditional and that expires at ten, so that expires next September. But luckily, they fund the semester if it started before your timeout, so I get that I get half of it under the GI Bill. Right. And I'm gonna have at least a summer. Uh, of classes so if i do that next summer i'll have that paid for too so i'll only have one year left for the gi bill uh, to not cover but that's no big deal yeah i'll figure it out millions of kids do it every year yeah i'll figure it out yeah (laughs) i've got faith in you brother (laughs) well ross i appreciate you uh you coming in and doing this man this is uh hopefully you can come back and do it again yeah sure i'd love to it's fun and we can talk next time we can talk philosophy of life we can talk books we can talk more military stuff whatever yeah it uh i'll have to write down some of my stories (laughs) some of the funnier stories about people getting run over by goats and stuff (laughs) (laughs) well brother it's been good talking to you and uh I appreciate you coming in. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. We'll see you, buddy. See ya.